Live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Total Education Show, a talk shop for teachers, parents, and administrators. Here's your host of the show, Neil Haley, the Total Tutor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Total Celebrity Show. You can check me out on Twitter, at Total Tutor, Neil S. Haley, Facebook, LinkedIn, Neil Haley, Instagram, Total Tutor, Pinterest, Neil Haley, Google Plus, and also on Periscope, at Total Tutor. And I'm so excited to welcome, uh, Tiffany, yeah, we're on the line. I'm so excited to welcome the program from NBC's The Carmichael Show, Tiffany Haddish. Tiffany, thanks for calling, and how are you? I'm great. How are you? Fantastic. Got to just get rolling, and uh, it's been one of those crazy days, but we'll we'll, we'll make it crazier because I'm sure you'll you'll make me laugh for sure today. Now, Tiffany, I, I'm sure you're blown away with uh, the opportunities you've had as a in your career as a comedian and an actress. Wouldn't you agree? Oh yes, I definitely agree. It's been an amazing ride. Amazing, amazing. How did it start out? First comedian. Tell me the story. Uh, yeah, first I started doing stand-up comedy um, because my social worker made me go to this Laugh Factory comedy camp, and I fell in love with it. Then I was just out here trying to just do comedy, and um, uh, one of my old colleagues was like, you should be on TV, you should be a movie star. And I was like, <laughs> girl, please, I can't read that good. <laughs> I'm going to just tell jokes. And this agent found me and asked me to let her represent me because she thinks I could do it. And then when I found out how much money you can make on TV, I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, let's do some TV stuff. Yeah, I should be a movie star. Yeah, I didn't know you could make that kind of money. Let's do this. Now, and see, that's interesting what you said, <laughs> Tiffany, because explain to the life as a comedian. It's basically, you know, hitting the comedy stage, never knowing if you're going to get paid or will get paid. Uh, the the, the right. whole The whole process of of getting yourself to be a headliner and, 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 and again, it's, it's a lot of fun writing, I'm sure. And being a comedian, but yet it's, it's, it's a tough road. And when you heard you could go and add and kind of mix your expert, your, your ability as a comedian and then and acting, it's a perfect mix, isn't it? But it is a challenge. What yeah. You're well, doing it, it is a perfect mix. And here's the thing too. It's, it's really, really hard. When I first started doing stand-up, it was so difficult for me because here I am, this cute little girl who has this crazy life experience of being in the foster care system and, you know, trying to take care of her brothers and sisters and everything. There's really nothing funny about that. But I love to laugh. I love, like, it's my thing. Like, it's how I was able to function through my teen years and everything because I watched this uh, movie called Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Okay, and yeah. there was a scene in the movie where the detective says to the rabbit, why are all these people doing this nice stuff you says because I make them laugh, baby. If you make them laugh, people will do anything for you. And I was like, yeah, that's how I'm gonna get people to do my homework. And that is what <laughs> I did. <laughs> it got me through a lot. And then I entered into this man's world of stand-up comedy, and I was dealing with you know dudes that are um, right. You know, there's some predators out here. They'll, I'm sure. they'll give you twenty-five dollars for a show and make it seem like they just gave you fifty thousand dollars. You know, they try to make you feel like. You're not worth what what you could be getting, what exactly. you think other people get. And so you have to learn how to be strong. You have to be like, no, I'm not taking that. You're, <laughs> you're going to give me what I'm worth. I counted you charging $15 a head. <laughs> There's 300 people in here. You have four comics on the show. I need at least 15% of that. I, I love when I'm hearing that, Tiffany, because my background is I was a former professional wrestler and did mostly minor leagues of pro wrestling, went overseas and got pretty good money and then wrestled for the WWE. But the fact is it's the same game. 
you know, these promoters are like, hey, yeah. you know, you, you got a house of 500, 700 people, and you're like, where's my cut? What, $50? $25, 100 yeah. or, you know what, the, sh- the, the show wasn't packed enough. We can't pay you today. But, hey, you got to headline, right? And that's the kind of stuff you dealt with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, it's like, you know, you want the stage time so you can get strong. Like the first five years, six years of my career, I was definitely doing shows for free and and doing all kinds, just trying to get up because I wanted to get stronger. Once I started booking, like doing stand-ups, like live at Gotham, you know, doing Arsenio Hall, doing a HBO's Comedy Jam, Who's Got Jokes, like start doing all these stand-up comedy TV shows. Now I know I'm strong enough to be on TV. So now you guys need to start giving me something. You can't just give me nothing. And then when I started traveling, like all across the world, right. across the country doing comedy, I was on some, you know, look, I tell jokes for free. I really do. I tell jokes for free. But you have to pay me to travel. And my travel fee is whatever my rent and or mortgage is. Now I got a mortgage. So whatever that is, that's what I'm going to need to be paid to leave my house. You figure, you, you see, if I'm going outside my city. You want me out my city? <laughs> exactly. I need my mortgage. <laughs> you, you, need to get your, you, get, you need to get paid because the amount of time you're traveling and all this stuff. Now think about this all, also, Tiffany, and this is what's the interesting point of this is once you built your brand where you got on recognizable television shows and things like that, then you could charge more to be a comedian, right? Because you now you're a headliner. Like Exactly. That's why it's every comic's dream to get on some kind of a television show, some sitcom, some something, because you build up a following that way. So tell me the specifics. So you were a comedy, then you started acting. What, you, did you take some acting classes and stuff before you started to try to go out and, you know, an audition and stuff? Yeah, I took like yeah, I definitely took some acting classes, which actually made my comedy stronger. Okay, good. Um, before I even started booking any like TV shows or whatever, and I mean in high school and junior high, I did. I was in drama because uh, I went to a predominantly white school, and the only black boy that I thought was hot was in drama, and I was like, perfect. That's what I need to do. I need to get in drama. Then that way we have the kids because they got to put the black people together for love scenes, right? <laughs> and um, it didn't necessarily work that way. <laughs> this teacher not being racist never put us together like that. <laughs> I was so mad. I was like, come on, Miss Green, be a little racist. Let me make out with him once. <laughs> Anyways, she. Um, so I used to win drama festivals and stuff all the time in high school. I used to do like monologue competitions and everything, and I used to win those. So then when it came to the acting classes, it was like kind of easy for me. The only part that was hard was, you know, the reading part, because I wasn't the best at reading. Good at memorizing things. You could tell me something, right, I right. remember it instantly. But now I'm way better. I met Robert De Niro. <laughs> Funny story. I met Robert De Niro at the Laugh Factory in the lobby. He came okay. to the show. And I was like, what's the best advice you could give a young, blooming actress? And he was like, read the newspaper every day for 15 minutes in a different character voice. That's what you could do. Oh. You'll be strong after that. And so, so give me another character. Tiffany, like, give, give me another character voice. Give me a character voice of when you, you were uh, attending... Uh, prep school, you know, school in, in an affluent area, when you talked about your days in high school and stuff, give me a, give me another voice. I'm putting <laughs> well, you on the I spot. Mean, exactly. 
exactly what type of voice are you looking for, my friend? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking it for... It just be, you know, I'm in the mood today for something that's, you know, a little nasally. That's <laughs> perfect. That's perfect. No, you're, you're reminding me of... Uh, it's interesting. I, I, just, I just found out I'm going to have someone from Blackish on my show tomorrow, and I'm so excited. But uh, I was uh, thinking of that, and just specifically, you know, you, you kind of have almost a story in a way. And I'm asking, you said you went to school mostly white kids and stuff in a private school. How did that happen, Tiffany? Where did you grow up? Well, it was not a private school. Was this private. was the LA Unified School District okay. program. Ship out, ship out the black kids because it's getting full oh, in LA. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and like, I think I like to think of it as a cultural exchange program because uh, it was like three percent. My, I went to Hell Middle School and El Camino Real High School in Woodland Hills, and I used okay. to have to get up every morning at 5 a.m., wow. catch the bus at 5.45, ride two hours out there. Two hours? Know, oh, my get, get my edu- Yeah, so two hours because of traffic and stuff. I mean, L.A. traffic is horrible. Then you ride back home. You get home by, like, 4.45, 5 o'clock. And then, um, yeah, then I ran track and field, so I wouldn't get home most of the time until, like, 7 and then, you know, you do your homework on the bus, and then, you know, I started making friends. I had cable TV, and that was cool because <laughs> then I got to watch cable because we didn't have cable in my house. And, um, and and I think it was, like, if I didn't go to school out there, I would have never had any white friends. I might have had a couple of Hispanic friends, but right. I would definitely not know how to fit into society. Like, I would definitely have really? issues. It's funny uh-huh. because I watched my cousins. You know, they didn't go to school. Like, they went to, like, uh, Lock, you know, on the east side, Lock High School on mm-hmm. the east side of L.A., which is, like, a gang-related, like, it's a it's a heavily gang-infested school. And, you know, they, when we're when we're around different kinds of, when I take them with me to events, and it's, like, everything out of the rainbow there, they are so uncomfortable. They are so scared. They're, like, and I'm, like, wow, that mentality of, you know, fear in the hood, you know, like, black people in the hood, they say they gang bangers, they ain't scared of nobody, but they. <laughs> are super scared of white people. I mean, they are terrified. Absolutely Really? Terrified. Why Why are they terrified of white people? Tell me that. Well, that's because uh, they, cause the police, because most of the time when they see white people, it's, it's the police, police and they are whooping ass. Wouldn't you be scared? That's so, so true. No, I'm, see, see, here's an interesting thing, Tiffany. I'm... Uh, uh, Caucasian, six foot ten, but I'm afraid of the police. I think everyone's afraid of the police. I think anyone's afraid of any authority <laughs> because no one's authority me anymore, Tiffany, except my, my, I guess my clients or, or old bosses. But think about it. But that one is one where you know you better not cross the line at all. You can cross your line with your boss. You can cross your line with parents. But when it's the the police, a lot of times there's no line to cross for anyone. And that's really? the truth. Really? So you telling me you ain't never been pulled over and been like, officer, why are you pulling me uh, over? This no, is just hogwash. This is ridiculous. Tr- this is poppycock. No, I can't believe no, it. No, no, see, see, that's the... See, that's really uh, taking a chance. And here's the reason why. <laughs> I've, I've dealt with a lot of police well, in that I've time. That. Uh, well, that, that. Hey, that might be in certain places, but other places, no. And... Every time it's basically an authoritative thing. Now, you're right. Maybe they let me go at times and, 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 and different things. But ultimately, the way I was uh, pulled over was not in a professional manner, Tiffany. It wasn't right. done in the right way. I mean, anytime I see well, a police officer. Well, they might have thought you were black at first, <laughs> and then they realized you weren't. 
<laughs> Maybe that's the problem. But I don't know. No, but I mean, I just think that the, the, you might have had a short haircut or something, or a little <laughs> curl in your hair, and they thought, "Hey, I wore, I wore, I wore that, I, that nice vehicle. That has to be a black man." Hey, hey, I wore, <laughs> I, I had the vanilla ice cut back in the day, you know. Maybe, but that's just, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the vanilla and ice is popular. That's when I was in high school. So I, I'm dating myself, I guess, <laughs> Tiffany, in that way. But no, no, I agree with you, and and I think that that's probably you're right—a fear of white people, and then also teachers. We do fear teachers, especially if they're not treating us in a nice way. And if that's the only right. time you're exposed to uh, Caucasian teachers or police officers, you really mm-hmm. don't have where, hey, I can connect, I can do this. And it, and it helps you in society because you have to be able to deal with everyone to be successful in life. Right. Not just— And that's why mm-hmm. I think that program was so good. Like, that was probably— like, there's a couple of things in my life that I think were the best things that happened to me. And I remember when they sent me, when um, right before I went into foster care, my mom put me in this program called Choices. And then the, the LA Unified School District picks a school in the Los Angeles County that is within 20 to 30 miles from where you live and sends you there. Right, so then right. it's like, a, it's kind of like an exchange program, but they don't send any kids this way. But they send us out. And it was the most educating, enlightening, uplifting experience of my entire existence, you know, and I felt safe there. That's the first time I felt like, you know, like I felt safe at school. I loved school when I went to school there because it was like, I'm with the kids from the Nickelodeon Awards. I thought all white people lived in TV and were police. That's all I thought, you know? Here I am with all these kids, and they got like moms and dads exactly. that pick them up and love them and care about them. Like, I'm like, I'm gonna be like that. I'm gonna have that one day. One day that that's gonna be me. You know, it gave me something to look forward to. And 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 that see that was great exposure for sure. Now, okay, Tiffany, I, yeah. I guess with our time and different things, I want to get to the Carmichael show. Uh, I was uh, checking out to make sure I could pronunciate your last name right by going on YouTube just a couple minutes ago before we got on live. And uh, I saw that you had a show on BET before that. So let's go right to that story. You had a show on P- BET. Now you're on the Carmichael show. You have a, uh, a movie coming yep. up soon, too. But let's kind of go. I'll we'll go with that story. Uh, first, the story about, I guess, one of your biggest breaks uh, before the Carmichael show. My biggest break before the Carmichael show? Yeah. I've had a few of those. Uh, I was on Real Husbands of Hollywood with Kevin Hart on BET. And oh, wow. I'm actually going to do some guest starring stuff on there. Um, then, uh, what else? Arsenio Hall did stand up on there. That really opened some doors for comedy. And then, um, right before the Carmichael show, I shot a movie called Keanu uh, with Key and Pill that's coming out April 29th. That um, I'm number three on the call sheet. Leading lady. What? Awesome. But see, I see. I already, already awesome. saw. I already saw some of the. Uh, already saw the. Uh, so you're got to be excited about that. I already saw that. Uh, the the preview. It looks really funny. It looks like a great movie. Tell, oh, man. Tell, I'm tell us about to it. See. I haven't seen it yet, but the reviews have been pretty darn good. And people that I know that have seen it are like, oh, my God, Tiffany, you're a fantastic actress. I would have never thought. would have never thought. And so I'm excited about that. And then, you know, right before then, I did um, a TV show called If Loving You Is Wrong on Oprah Winfrey's network, okay. where I was hoping I would get to meet Oprah and she would become my auntie. Um, it was a Tyler <laughs> Perry series that I worked on. But um, that didn't work out. I mean, it worked out, um, and he let me go out of the uh, If Loving You Is Wrong contract so that I could do the Carmichael show on NBC because he said, you'll make more money there. And I was like, you right about that. So... 
So tell us specifically yeah, I, I your. A lot of stuff in the last, then that's just the last three years. Let's see, and that's 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 an unbelievable story. And you have a, a lot of unbelievable stories, Tiffany. I didn't think I was going to get into the school thing in such a way, and then about the police. Hey, you never know when you have a conversation oh, yeah. with me and stuff. And then, oh, don't get me started. Uh, I married the police. That's a whole nother. That's a oh, lifetime movie right okay. there. I got lifetime movies for you. You're, you're ready. You're ready. I have you're a little life. You're, you're so ready for all those things. But let's kind of go into the Carmichael show and your role on the Carmichael show. Your character. Tell mm-hmm. us about that. Yeah. Yeah, so I play Nikisha on the Carmichael show, where, um, and Nikisha is pretty much like the voice. I like to say she's the voice of the hood or the voice of the lower class, you know, or the, the working class yes. woman who's just like, you know, hey, it's like this, and I'm doing what I gotta do to survive. And you know, she's not gonna tolerate her man being broke and living off of her. Uh, I'm not gonna be married to a man like that. But um, they're too poor to get a divorce, so they just stick it out till you know, she make more money. That's what she's working on. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Nikita's fun. Everything she says is pretty funny. Those writers are so amazing. They put the most funniest things in my mouth, and I love to say them because it's just magic when it, when it comes out. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the Carmichael show is a great show because it's about conversation. You know, we have basically conversations that a lot of people in America are having, and it's like giving all points of view of it. Yes. So, you know, my side is like the more, you know, working class, uh, low-income black woman that's like, hey, I see it like this. This is, <laughs> you know, this is how I feel. Yeah, I went out in the riots, and I and I stole the TV, but I stole it from the bottom of my heart for you because I love you, man. <laughs> I carried this big screen all the way across. Because I love you. You know, happy birthday. You're my bro. <laughs> like, and, and don't see nothing wrong with it. Like, don't see nothing wrong with that at all. Because, shoot, they've been working us for years. The least they can do is give me a TV. <laughs> see, and, 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 and I was watching about 15 minutes of it because, uh, and the, the last episode last week on the show, and it was uh, really brought up the whole thing about Islam and the Muslim. And that was an interesting. Yeah. That was a really interesting episode because it gave different points of view. Because a lot yeah, of times, like, how, uh, like yeah. how ignorant it is. Like Lakeisha was so ignorant in that episode, talking about well, everybody knows that terrorists are renters. Because why would you buy something if you know you're gonna go jihad and not be able to benefit from the tax break? Like that don't make no sense. <laughs> if you know you're about to go get your virgins, <laughs> that is such an ignorant point yes. of view to have on something, but it is exactly how people think. They see the news and that's, and then they make their predict, they make their whole uh, conceptions on what media they watch, what they listen to, who they talk to. And then they can't have another point of view. She watches Fox because she don't know that. <laughs> so, see, and see, that's interesting, and see that, and that's tackling something different where there's not a, uh, you know, sometimes one point of view doesn't bring the whole t- to the table, and that's great that the Carnival show. I was surprised because uh, a lot of ways it was it was bringing out different perspectives and and how you know how Muslims think and feel, especially mm-hmm. in the being in the United States compared to what African Americans have dealt with for years. And oh yeah, you're now dealing mm-hmm. with it. Look out! Oh, you know, it's not just you and and fear and and I just I really it was really good. And when I was uh, connecting with part of this show for sure, and I'm de- I'm going to definitely put it on my things to watch list. Oh my gosh, I'm adding a huge list for the summer because I got I got I guess I got to get Netflix. I have to to catch up with all the <laughs> yeah. all, all the different shows. Or Hulu. 
or Hulu but or whatever. Whatever. It's so funny because um, yeah. oh, wait till you see next week's episode. I feel like that's gonna. Okay, get tell, a lot tell, of heat. tell. Can you say bring a, give us a little sneak peek and then give us a one more thing about the uh, your your role in Keanu and then we have to say sign ours soon. But tell us a give us a, a sneak peek of for Sunday's well, show. The sneak peek for next week. Just just uh, be ready because uh, we're talking about people coming home from prison and how that goes. You ever have that? Like somebody's out of jail and you're like, oh, Lord, I don't even want them around here no more. <laughs> like, I don't know I want them around. <laughs> but it's, it's a whole bunch of different point of views on that. Like, you know, the people that throw parties for the people that come home from prison, like, hey, wait a minute, you was on punishment. Now I'm going to throw your party. No, you got to go get a job. You got to do this. You got to do that. Like, so it's a lot of different point of views on that. And then um, the Keanu movie is a hilarious movie about gangsters trying to catch a pussy. I mean, trying to get a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's chasing this cat. It's something so special about the cat. And what's funny is I have, there was like, it took seven cats, no, eight cats to make this movie. I was laughing my butt off. I was laughing my butt off just watching the previews of this. I'm telling you. I said, what? They're going to look after and find a cat? I was seriously saying, are you really kidding me? So I'm so excited for your success. <laughs> I, I definitely want to have you back but when, when you, you see you're, this movie. Yeah, like yeah. this is what I do know from watching the ADR. You're gonna fall out laughing because it is so dramatic, but it's so funny. The the because it's dramatic, but it's hilarious. Key and Peele are hilarious. They're so funny. Yes, they're awesome entertainers. Uh, I mean, I saw their thing they did on uh, after the Super Bowl on uh, I forget which uh, which late night show, and uh, I was just I was laughing. I said, "Man, I see I got to get in pop culture more, and the only way I do it is by interviewing people uh, in my studio. I guess that's how it is, but yeah. it, it, that, that's how it goes. Everyone thinks I'm cool, but yet I have I'm pretty much not cool except when I interview people. But uh, the days I used to be cool, I used to be cool, You're and I was a pro- cool outside of that too. You just have to believe that you are. <laughs> Just to, like okay. I believe I'm a unicorn, <laughs> the last black unicorn. So, Tiffany, best place we can find information, follow you, learn more about you, all those different things. Again, NBC's The Carmichael Show is on at what time? Eastern. Uh, tune in Sunday. Sundays at 9. Sundays at 9. And information on you. Where can we yeah. find info on you? Uh, if you want to find me, just go to Facebook, my um, fan page, Tiffany Haddish, or Twitter, Tiffany Haddish, or Instagram, Tiffany Haddish, or MySpace, Tiffany Haddish. Basically, I'm on everything under Tiffany Haddish. Tiffany, like the diamonds, had and dish, keep the two Ds. She ready. Hey, I at least looked up your, didn't uh, mess up your uh, pronunciation. I'm sure you've heard of many pronunciations of your last name. So uh, good talking, yeah, Tiffany. I know so many. <laughs> so, so good talking to you. And uh, from where my dad's from, he would say, <laughs> you're, you're so funny. And uh, and it's interesting. And your background in comedy would be something we could talk about sometime as well. So best of luck. Let me know when you have other projects to promote and stuff. You're welcome to come back on. Take care. Okay, cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, Talk All to right. you later. I'll right, see you later. Bye-bye. Okay. You're listening to the Total Celebrity Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Total Celebrity Show. I'm the host of the show, Neil Haley. You can go to my website, Tolter.net, for more information. Twitter, Tolter, Neil S. Haley, Facebook. LinkedIn, Neil Haley. Instagram, Tolter. Pinterest, Neil Haley, Google+. Plus. Also on Periscope, at Total Tutor. So I'm excited to welcome the program. U.S. Congressman from Pennsylvania, Congressman Tim Murphy. Congressman Murphy, thanks for calling. And how- Congressman Murphy. Yes. Congressman, Neil. Congressman Murphy, thanks for calling. And how are you? I'm doing great, Neil. How are you? 
Thanks, thanks for being on the show. It's an absolute honor to have you on and to talk to you about uh, things that are really makes you passionate, especially writing the book and your initiative uh, to try to serve the mental health community in such a, a, an unbelievable way, especially when we're seeing that we're underserving for sure when it comes to taking care of them. And I, I have a lot of colleagues behind that as well. But I wanted to kind of get into your story, first of all. Did you ever think you were going to be a congressman growing up that you would be in Congress? No. <laughs> no, actually, I didn't. I mean, I had some interest like many kids do. You see these um, elected officials out there. You watch the conventions on TV. And I thought, oh, that must be pretty cool to do it. Actually, when I was in high school, I thought about it. But uh, when I uh, continued on, I got an interest in psychology, loved the field, um, stayed in there, and then the rest just became something that I would sometimes lobby uh, state senators or representatives or congressmen on issues, you know, talk to them about it. And um, I never really thought that I would be over in Congress dealing with it myself. Oh, definitely. You never know what ends up happening. So you had aspirations growing up into politics. So did you study it or were interested in high school about what was going on in your uh, going on in uh, politics? I was because I was interested in history. So I would read up on it. I'd read biographies of presidents. I would uh, study issues. I'd watch the news. You know, that's uh, not something high school kids usually do. But uh, it was a time in the 60s and 70s when uh, there was a lot of turmoil in the country. And it was important. You took an interest in these issues. So so I did. And then what emerged later on was the concerns about health care, uh, uh, what was happening with managed care. Could people get access to care? All those things were, were things developing. And as I watched them, I thought, you know, I'm trying to help these elected officials understand these issues and what it's doing. Um, and that's probably more what drove me into the field then. Interesting. So, And, and you learned that from uh, being, uh, you know, going through your your professional background and career and saying, oh, my gosh, definitely people are underserved in the healthcare field. And that's quite interesting. We'll talk about that process. So you were informed. You're you're a part of that. Would you say that you've politically changed over your life from when you were in the 60s and 70s to now of who you supported or interested in in that time? Would you say kind of your political views have changed growing up? Yeah, I think it did. I think what happened is um, folks like Ronald Reagan came around and influenced me into thinking oh, yeah. that uh, that people should have some responsibility and opportunity. And I watched the failure uh, as government tried to do everything for people, and it just didn't seem to work out. So um, it, it, grew, it grew my interest uh, as it went on. Um, so it, uh, uh, but what stayed constant for me was the interest in healthcare policy itself. And mm-hmm. as I would go okay. through these things, realizing that that was not something that elected officials really understood, the gravity or seriousness of the situation. Uh, when I would go somewhere and talk about these issues uh, and try and explain it to uh, elected officials, I mean, really, in the, in the 1980s, many people just didn't think that we needed to do much about health care policy, especially mental health care. Uh, yes. In the 90s, more the same. Um, but I saw it early on emerging as an important issue that we needed to address, the cost, the access, the quality, uh, all things. I didn't want a government takeover of it, but I knew we had to deal with these issues if we were going to make a difference in people's health. 
Now, we go into the whole thing about going to uh, the, the university you attended. Uh, the, first of all, you, you, uh, you went to Wheeling Jesuit University, and, and you got your Bachelor's of Science, and you went on to Cleveland State University to get your Ph.D. So in that whole process, so you married in psychology at Wheeling Jesuit and then went on to CSU to get the Ph.D. Once you became a psychologist, what was alarming to you? That's kind of what I think a lot of your thoughts changed when you started looking at mental health in general and the people that you're serving and how the access that they had, right? Yes. Uh, I should first correct and say I got my master's degree in clinical psychology from Cleveland State, my doctorate degree from the University of Pittsburgh. But what I noticed oh, okay. is once I, started, once I started practicing the field, I, you know, here I was trained to do the best I could at the diagnosis and treatment of uh, mental and behavioral disorders, but constantly kept coming up against these legal issues of what are you allowed to do and how are you allowed to do it. Uh, and I was perplexed by this, that I thought, well, here's the only field of healthcare where much of what we do is defined by lawyers. Now, I understand yes. where that comes from because there was terrible abuses in the past of people's rights, where people yes. uh, for decades had been unfairly committed into institutions and treated poorly. And so we did need to look at their rights. But it became an issue, though, that much of this the government dealt with in the mental health field by saying, let's save money by closing down the asylums. Now, those asylums didn't need yes. to close down, but we needed a replacement, and that didn't happen. And then uh, it was, well, where do these people go? Some got better because of better treatments, because of medication. But if we look right. at this, we didn't really uh, eliminate them. We just began to put them in prisons. They, the homeless population soared. Uh, the number of people who were boarded in emergency rooms waiting for a psychiatric bed to open grew. Yeah. Uh, in what I think is a very cruel practice of having them there for hours or days or months. In, Absolutely. In some cases, just waiting for a bed. Or sending them back home and saying, okay, family, you take care of someone. And the family said, well, what are we supposed to do? What's the medications? What's his treatment plan? How do we do that? And then hear doctors say, well, we can't tell you because he didn't give us permission, but good luck. I, I think the whole field actually took a quantum leap backwards. What was supposed to have been a good plan, close the institutions, provide more community-based care. But government said, hey, let's – it, it was this double whammy. It was a, this yeah. imperfect storm where they said – on one side said, well, let's save money by closing the asylum. And the other side said, and let's protect their rights by saying no one can help them. And so you ended up with millions of people not receiving the care that they needed. We wouldn't do the same with cancer or diabetes or no. lung disease or anything else. But with mental illness, uh, government planning and programs, we caused the stigma. We made it more difficult for people to get care. We pulled the plug on it. Imagine we if did. we did this to our prisons, Congressman Murphy. We're saying, oh, you know, we can't afford prisons anymore, so we're going to close them. We'll let, we'll let the family take care of these people that are not as, you know, let's say the, we're going to close many prisons. That could be a plan. We all know that for sure if we're hearing people talk. Then where, where are they going to go? If they, are, if they have a criminal mind and they can't be rehabilitated and we're going to throw them right on the streets. Well, this thing, it's even a worse situation when you're talking about mental health. Because they do not know what, when they're in specific phases of their illness, what they're really doing. So you're basically putting, uh, I'd hate to say the word, a gun in their hand, but you're putting a gun in their hand in a way where they just can't control themselves. Take care of it. 
or, or, or um, you know, mom and dad, I know you're 80-something, but you could take care of him. He's going to be fine, when, or she. We need some other option, and not allow that option. That had to be really tough when you were a practicing psychologist, wasn't it? It was miserable because what we did, we made, we made it the most difficult for those who have the most difficulty. Uh, and, and you said it so well uh, that leaving it up to family members to handle this uh, for people who, about, you know, about 40% of people with severe mental illness, such as schizophrenia or bipolar illness, 40% of them have a characteristic called anosognosia, which means they are not even aware that they are sick. You see this also in stroke victims and Alzheimer's and dementia. And so then we leave it up to people to monitor their own care, to get to their appointments, their household, to take their medication. And if someone is in the midst of hallucinations and delusions and thinks these voices are real or is hearing, uh, hearing voices that says that their father is working for the FBI and planting electrodes in their brain or they, they, have, a, they have the delusions, that, uh, they can't possibly care for themselves. And yet between the patient's right movements and states willing to cut funding, we, we just dumped them uh, uh, in, in almost a third-world approach of good luck. Um, and, then, and then what we've learned as society is just to walk over them as if they don't even exist any more than a crack on a sidewalk when they're lying in the streets or the train stations or the bus terminals uh, and ignore them as homeless. You got it. And, and, that, and that's as I am going to be traveling to New York this weekend We'll see lots of homeless people that it's not because they've cho- they've chosen that they've just had things haven't gone right in their life and they're homeless. They're homeless because they're mentally ill, and no one's there to treat them. Their parents have died, their 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 loved ones have died, and we're just put them on the streets. Which is really there's, this, uh, there's, there's this other perversion of thought that says that uh, you know this is as good as it gets. The, the life you have of living in filth and squalor is the life you've chosen, and we'll let you deal with that. What a bizarre uh, uh, excuse that we've given ourselves yes. the most compassionate thing is to do nothing at all. Uh, New York recently, I think, put some $800 million or so into programs for behavioral health and mental health, and it's really not for mental illness. It's, it's, it's parks, it's, uh, it's bike trails, it's, it's happiness, oh. uh, sadness issues. It's not dealing with the severe problems of schizophrenia and bipolar it's not dealing with, uh, with the causes of homelessness. You know, perhaps a third or more of the homeless have a mental illness. They need treatment. Uh, they don't need yes. to be ignored. But as you go to New York and you go to the train station, you'll see people everywhere and on the corners and other places that uh, they're, they're, they're as if they're just nothing more than a street sign and you walk by them. And what we ought to be doing is saying, let's get them treatment. Let's, instead of saying that we're just going to ignore them, Many of these folks with proper treatment, with educational support, with housing support, why not have an expectation and a hope that they can become productive members of the community? Why not help them rise above this level? Why do we do this? Would we do this with any other disease? Can you imagine if we told people with cancer, hey, this is as good as it gets. Good luck to you. Yeah. Um, hope you're doing I mean, well. It, it, we wouldn't do that. It, it, and this is where we as a country have to say we aren't going to just say, well, it's, that's what they are. They're homeless. We're going to try to help them in certain ways, provide significance, we're going to provide certain things, and we're going to give up on them, and we don't know what success stories. I love the point you talked about, which if we could treat some of these people, and they're treatable. Explain that to our audience, that some of these homeless, if we're treated and put on medication and had therapy and were monitored, 
could be really productive members of society if we had those services available. Exactly, and that's an exciting thing, and this is where the real, the real compassion comes. If you start off, for example, early in their life, we know now serious mental illness, about half the cases emerge by age 14, 75% mm-hmm. by age 24. If you get involved okay. in those early prodromal phases uh, where the problems begin to emerge, it makes a huge difference. You need, need less medication. Therapy can, be, therapy can be very effective. And the person themselves is less fearful of treatment. But once you begin to ignore them, as they go into their uh, psychotic breakdowns and crises, we know that actually leads to some neurological impairment and damage. And it also yes. means, sadly, in many cases, their encounter with a system may be a police officer. And as they're encountering a police officer, um, you can understand their fear and paranoia of getting help. Uh, and, and so they may resist more. But after a person has been left alone for a while, uh, we hear of many cases where uh, a homeless person, you know, then when offered an apartment or their housing, uh, because they have been so incapacitated for so long, they resist that. They don't know that. It's a different world to them. Uh, intervening early can make a big difference. And quite frankly, it saves a lot of money. We know that, for example, um, uh, a person who is severely mentally ill is 10 times more likely to be in jail than in a hospital. Oh, my. And if they're in jail, 80% of people who are mentally ill in jail don't get treatment. And it has grown to such a level that about half of people in jails, and in some jails it's much more, but half people in jails, maybe 60%, have a mental illness, untreated. They cycle in and out of the system. Uh, once they leave jail, they don't have housing. They don't have supports. Yes. Uh, they don't have treatment. They cycle back in. What some states have done, about 45 states have something called assisted outpatient treatment. For those folks who have um, repeated acts of violence and arrest, instead of ignoring them, uh, what they do is a judge says, look, I'm not going to keep uh, putting you in inpatient care because you don't need that. If you're in treatment, you're doing fine. So I'm going to order you to stay in outpatient care. Take your medication, see your counselor, get to this education supports and housing supports. can make a big difference in their life. But once they get ignored and once they go down that road of, of crisis to crisis, the impairments grow and continue, and that's when we see so many homeless, so many incarcerated, so many in yes. emergency rooms. And you talked about early intervening. Looking at mental health, I, uh, I have a client of mine, uh, Congressman Murphy, that she's passionate about making the brain healthy, to look at keep, uh, helping train the brain, helping it in a way that we got to look at these types of crises that happen from a specific situation of maybe uh, uh, a terrible home life to being in a real crisis that it's so hard to get out of that leads to that point and to always constantly mm-hmm. look at keep it getting enough rest, uh, not overstressing yourself, identifying when there are issues and, and, and all those things. I saw that you co-authored a book called The Angry Child, Regaining Control When Your Child Is Out of Control. And in a lot of ways, you see some of the people that are angry that these kids later on could end up with some sort of mental issues, couldn't they, if not treated? Exactly right. So, yeah, sometimes that early anger is an indication uh, there's other problems. It could, it could mean that there's a family that has stress. It could be parents just don't know how to parent or struggling with that. It could be attention disorder. But sometimes uh, anger and emotional volatility is an early sign of other problems. So we talk about that in the book, The Angry Child. I might add uh, another book I wrote called Overcoming Passive Aggression, 
a, a, the second edition that is coming out this fall. Uh, because okay. one of the things we do to each other is uh, these passive-aggressive techniques of not quite helping someone, underhanded ways of handling anger, indirect uh, issues. Um, yeah, sometimes think that's the way Congress acts, but it is um, the way that uh, it's another book I hope people will look out for in the fall. <laughs> well, great, and that's awesome, and, and I think that just shows how the talented congressman you are, and that's why I said celebrity, because if you're an author and you're, you've written books and you're in Congress, you, you are definitely helping change things, and you have a platform that this is something part of being a congressman that says, I really want to look at this. I look at our prisons, how overflooded they are based on possibilities, the homeless, looking at broken families based on, uh, a, I guess, a mental illness continuing to go through the family from one generation to the next. We have to mm-hmm. kind of stop this. So when you talked about the anger, to look out for that, to see when kids are angry, especially what age is it like, okay, you, you recommend therapy. What anger is something for parents to say, okay, I'm going to put my hands up. I can't handle this. I've tried everything. I need to see a professional. What kind of I, I think, I, Yeah. Yeah, at that, at that point, when parents feel they can't, if the child's anger continues to grow out of control, that is a time to get help. Uh, you can't just punish your way out of it. Certainly by setting limits on children as they're growing up, the kids want structure. We have become a very permissive yes. society. So we ended up with a lot of millennials who were arguing about and complaining about microaggressions, that someone doesn't like them, that teachers are expecting them to actually study and work. And, um, and that is unfortunate. That's a sad state of affairs we have as we've hovered over children too much and have protected them from the stresses that, that inoculate them and make them stronger and better. Uh, and that's an area where parents sometimes, you know, it's like when you let a child learn to walk, sometimes they got to fall. And, and, with, uh, and as we go through, that's the way you really strengthen them and raise them. Uh, you can't always hover over them. But when you see anger growing uh, and getting absurd and ridiculous, uh, sometimes that could be a child who has outlandish tantrums. Sometimes it could be a sign of a child whose uh, thought processes are really struggling. Uh, and then that, of course, can lead to teasing and bullying by other children, exacerbate the problems. And it is important you, you seek professional help as those things grow. And what would you recommend parents, especially young, uh, with, with parents with young children, to really treat kids so that they can be mentally healthy, that their brain can be healthy? What recommendations well, would you offer? Yeah. It, is, it isn't just a matter of always giving them praise of uh, you're wonderful, you're special, you're unique, just like a snowflake. Uh, it is also important to let them understand the world is tough, and sometimes you say no. And if you want something, you've got to earn it. You're not just going to get it because you looked at it. Uh, uh, you, can, you can work for things um, that uh, you have chores, you have responsibilities. That is how you grow confidence. Uh, you don't get confidence just by giving things uh, on a silver platter and letting them have it um, as, as you go through. That's one of the best things that parents could do is the gift of work and expectations. And uh, the work and expectations and really expect the best from them and to uh, constantly model it yourself as parents. The model is mm-hmm. such an important part of it. If you're modeling behaviors that you want your kids to model, you can't go out and do things that they'll just say, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And that's the thing. Exactly. Don't, don't do as I say, but they don't do. That's just, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a contradiction, isn't it? It is. And it's helpful for parents sometimes just to have that, that narrative expressing out loud. Gee, I want this. I can't do it. Um, either you know I've got to work at it to learn the skill set or I'm going to have to work to get more money or work harder at my job 
um, or something, you know, inevitably every day there's some frustration that happens to us and parents can just say, hey, it didn't go the way I wanted, but that's no way for me to treat, no, no excuse for me to treat someone rudely or, you know, uh, yell at someone at a coffee shop or a, a grocery clerk. Heck, they're just trying to do their job um, or someone who cut me off on the highway. Kids do learn from what their parents say and do. And, um, and just those, out, those, those verbal statements the parent can say out loud, like, yeah, life is tough and I got to learn to deal with it is a lot better than telling a child you're entitled to get whatever you want. And if you think someone is not giving you the, the right grades, even though you didn't earn them, let me know and we'll complain and get a lawyer to sue the school. Uh, that's a huge injustice you teach a child. Uh, they've got to learn that, uh, that life is sometimes tough and they got to roll with it. Because there's going to be that tipping point when everyone in their lives is going to have some sort of crisis in their lives or going to have some sort of uh, challenge. And how are they going to overcome it? If they don't learn how to overcome challenges when they're young, how are they going to overcome them when they're adults? And that's, that's exactly. a big thing that can lead to mental, some sort of mental issue. If you aren't sure. able to handle things, if something really big happens to you and you can't handle it and you put yourself into a tailspin and can't get out, look out. Now, one of the things that really impressed me, especially we've seen a lot of the, uh, the, the shootings out there, the mass shootings, and always we're constantly talking about guns. And I'm not going in the political end of things. I'm going more of what I've seen, the people that have done these shootings. A lot of them have mental issues, possibly something that even is, is, is severe ADHD or some other thing as well. But the parents weren't able to treat it because they only had certain amount of services. And once the kids got older, they couldn't control them, and they just dealt with it because they didn't want to deal with these things. But you've introduced the Helping Families and Mental Crisis Act. Tell us a little bit about that to help families and stuff, because I think that's the biggest thing. When you have somebody who's suffering and you can't do anything about it and you're afraid for your life or their lives, we got to do something, right? Exactly right. And so our bill, the Helping Families and Mental Health Crisis Act, also known as HR 2646, now has about 185 bipartisan co-sponsors in Congress. 186, excuse me. Um, we've got to move this bill. It does several things that have to be done. We need more psychiatric hospital beds for people who are in the deepest yes. of crisis and the breakdown. We only have about 40,000. We need 100,000 psychiatric hospital beds. But again. Medicaid has actually caused some of the problems by saying we're not going to let people who are low income go into hospitals that have more than 16 beds, a ridiculous rule that needs to change. We also yes. need to change the Medicaid rule that says you can't see more than one doctor from a practice in the same day. That's ridiculous. If a pediatrician or a family physician is identifying someone and saying, look, we think these behaviors your son, your daughter, your brother, sister, mother, father have are related to a mental illness, they need to see someone right away. What a cruel thing it is to tell someone of low income, can you come back another time? Families who themselves <laughs> yeah. have problems with transportation, that has to change. We also want to make sure that the federal agencies involved with funding, et cetera, are focusing more on solid prevention and services to those with mental illness, not uh, happy behavioral wellness plans. They have funded programs before and such things as a crisis a phone line they could call if they were in New yes. England and were experiencing snow anxiety, or workshops on making masks or collages or interpretive dancing, or a $400,000 website of sing-along songs for children, or a $25,000 painting of two people sitting on a rock to symbolize mental health awareness. Those are wastes of money, and all those could have gone towards services to help someone 
we change that. We make accountability. And also something that's very important is to allow family members to get more involved. You know that for uh, the longest time, we would we would blame parents for schizophrenia and bipolar and autism. Yes. We now know there's genetic markers for those, uh, a wide range of them, that will help us in the future to have more targeted treatment for them. But family members can be very helpful in the process. But what happened is these HIPAA privacy laws have gone oh, yeah. so far in the pendulum that, that if someone, again, is hallucinating, delusional, says, don't tell my dad because he's Martian, um, that the therapist can't tell the father. And our problem is we don't want them telling therapy notes. No, that, that will remain private. But if, if it's such things as saying, okay, this is, John needs to be making sure he takes this medication daily, or please make sure he fills a subscription or prescription. Or, by the way, he also has diabetes. He needs to see an endocrinologist. Yeah. He's got lung disease. It's a, um, the, the rules are now that you can't pass that information on. It is tragic that people with mental illness tend to die 10 to 25 years sooner than the rest oh of the population. Yeah. And much of that preventable because of complications that are not treated. Um, so we, we want to tweak that little section of the law. It's not opening up medical records. It's not opening up the therapy records. But just to allow a provider to have that compassionate communication with the parent to say, here's something you need to know to facilitate treatment when, when that is necessary. Not all the time, but when it is necessary. I, I, I hope it's so that, so again, we're still waiting on to see, are you going to get this uh, act passed? How close are you? Well, it has moved out of the subcommittee of health. It is before the full committee of energy and commerce. We hope people will call their congressmen, call members of the committee. Yes. Uh, the chairman of the committee is spread up and asked them to move it forward. We are awaiting some more numbers here uh, that deal with the cost of this. Uh, you know, I look upon this mental illness in America costs about half a trillion dollars a year. Um, the, the federal government sends about $500 million to states, but we spend about $100 billion a year on disability payments. Uh, our bill may cost a couple billion a year. I think it's well worth spending. And we've just got to find a ways of dealing with this. But um, it's a matter of getting the, the chairman to set a date, move it forward, get people off their seats and start moving this. Um, uh, you know, yes. there's, there's a lot in this bill. This is hugely comprehensive. We're not getting anywhere by having it sit on the shelf. We'll move this bill. But it'll move if Americans speak up, if families who have seen this crisis, who have lived this problem, if individuals yes. as consumers of the system themselves said, hey, you know, I'd do a lot better, but I can't get the care I need. I can't find a psychiatrist or psychologist in my town. My school doesn't have these services. All of these things will be immensely helpful if people communicate with their congressmen. Absolutely. Okay, so last thing, I'm going to ask an education question because that's where I started, Congressman Murphy, but I've moved a lot further in my radio career since starting with an education talk show at WRCT to where I am today. But the question I want to ask is specifically where do you see our education system? You talk about the, the, the psycho psychology system and the mental health part of our country. What about our education system? I'm not very happy with uh, certain things that are going on in our school system right now in our public education and even Catholic schools uh, with Common Core and things like that. I wanted to take and see where you are standing on specific issues education-wise. Hello? Congressman Murphy. I'm sorry. Uh, we, we've gone a long way with some things, but by getting rid of No Child Left Behind, a, a, a program which said every child's going to have the exact same test, whether they're the valedictorian or a learning disabled student, we, we still have a long way to go with accountability, with uh, helping kids learn uh, more, uh, individualizing curriculum. Uh, some of the STEM and science programs have been helpful. 
uh, but the U.S. still lags behind other countries there. Yes. Um, and when I talk, with, when I get some fascinating information when I talk to foreign exchange students who come here, and many of them say they really didn't have to study much when they came to American schools, and they're amazed at how much time is spent on extracurricular activities, uh, sports and other things uh, to help people feel yes. good, and not so much a pressure on academics. We need to understand we are in a competitive world. And as the U.S. is trying to recapture our position as the top manufacturer in the world, we lost that to China. And we need to be pushing towards more engineers and more science and people who do the hands-on work, whether they're plumbers or welders yes. or uh, uh, machinists. We need them all in America. And we need to be helping them people to understand, go where your passion is, go where your skills are. And the schools, uh, we need to continue to be involved as communities not to be rescuing kids and tell teachers just give my kid an A because they wanted to get an A, yes. but to say we want to have a higher quality education at all times. Awesome. Best place we can find information on you, Congressman Murphy, is uh, I guess to Google you, or do you have any places like a website for your book or anything that people can check things out? Go to Amazon to purchase your books for uh, sure. They, but any place they yeah. can go to, yes, Amazon to look at the book, The Angry Child, and also Overcoming Passive Aggression. Uh, they can go to my website also for my congressional site, uh, murphy.house.gov. Uh, that will give them information on the bill. Um, and, uh, of course, again, I hope people contact their own congressman and say, please, co-sponsor the bill, or if they have, thank you for co-sponsoring. But above all, let's get this bill moving towards a vote and start saving some lives. Well, thank you for t spending the time with me. I'm definitely passionate on your initiative. I definitely will be co contacting people as well. And uh, we need to fix this. And, we need, and you're definitely going out there and working with both sides of the aisle to make sure that these things happen. So best of luck with all your ventures, and thanks again for calling. All right, thank you. Have a great day. Bye now. Take care, Congressman Murphy. Bye. You're listening to the Total Celebrity Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Total Celebrity Show. I'm the host of the show, Neil Haley. You can check me out on Twitter, at Total Tutor, Neil S. Haley, Facebook, LinkedIn, Neil Haley, Instagram, Total Tutor, Pinterest, Neil Haley, Google+, and also on Periscope, at Total Tutor. And I'm excited to welcome the program. Grammy Award-winning winner, Rita Coolidge, and author of Delta Lady. Rita, thanks for calling, and how are you? I'm good, Neil. How are you this morning? Is it afternoon where you are? Oh, it's uh, still this morning, 10.51. Are you, are, okay. so, so, you're, so you're in L.A.? It feels like it's uh, Alaska. Woke up today 20 degrees this late in April. I'm like, I don't like this at all. We had like 70 or 75 oh, degrees. Oh, my goodness. And so, <laughs> Only the 82 here today. Oh, don't. That's the. I wish I was going to LA this weekend, not New York, but I'm heading to New York this weekend. But, uh, uh, you know, it is what it is. But uh, I'm sure uh, the, the excitement uh, of, of your book coming out and to be able to tell your story is really exciting for you, isn't it? It is exciting. And the book is released today. And after. Almost three years of uh, since we, you know, decided to do the book. Uh, you know, it's like kind of like having a uh, a very long uh, pregnancy. I guess I feel like the baby's been born this morning, and it's pretty fabulous. Uh, definitely, for sure. And to to look at your career and how it spanned, and then starting out as a as a, as a backup singer and to where you became, uh, you know, Billboard top music, uh, certain songs and things like that. You, did you think when you were just being a backup singer that you would accomplish so much in your music career? When I was a backup singer, I 
I think that I enjoyed it so very much. Um, that I, I think that I've had such a great time in all of my musical endeavors. But uh, probably when I was on the road with Delaney and Bonnie and the fabulous band, it was the best band I ever played with. And I think I was just so happy um, singing with that band um, that it never really, I don't think I really felt like that I needed to be in front or wanted to be in front because Bonnie Bramlett to me is the best one of the best singers alive. Um mm. but I think probably on Mad Dogs and Englishman tour when Joe Cocker gave me a solo spot on that tour and gave me kind of my my first taste of the center stage, I think uh, that I did start dreaming about it and and it happened very soon after by the end of the tour I had signed with A and M Records. So I didn't have a lot of time, like a lot of artists do, of working and trying to beat down doors and trying to get a record deal. They kind of came to me, so I was blessed in that way. And then you see uh, how how highlighted the uh, back backup singers were, especially the Oscars a couple years ago and stuff like that, and the people that went on to, to different things, and then you got your opportunity, and th- there it goes. When you were number one the first time, how amazed were you? Rita, was it just like something like "Holy cow, I can't believe we cl- we climbed this far"? And when you write a song, you know, when you sing a song and write a song, you never know where it's going to go, do you? Yeah, it was a pre- it was pretty amazing the first time I I heard higher and higher, uh, you know, kind of floating out of my radio, and I was I had just lost a child a couple of months oh, before. Man. And I was standing in the kitchen doing dishes in Malibu and the home where Chris and I lived with our daughter Casey and it came over the radio and I just dropped everything and uh and it just it just kind of felt the momentum of that record start to build and it was the most the most amazing experience in my life. Uh, except for having my child, but most career experience to have that first hit record and and to ride that, you know. And I'm still, you know, 50 years later, I'm almost I'm still doing what I love, and and I'm blessed. Well, I definitely uh, truly blessed. And in, in, in your book, what other stuff you, I know you cover your music career, but also probably early life as well and where you grew up and stuff like that. So our, our, our listeners will, if they pick up the book, will get to really know who you are, right, Rita? Kind of expound on some of the things that you covered in your book. Well, it's, you know, it started when I grew I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, but my family lived in Northeast Tennessee. And so I talk about my family and my family roots and my family heritage, which is uh, Cherokee and Scott. And my father was a Baptist preacher and my mother was a school teacher and, you know, just um, a very rural life. Um, But, you know, just so I have so much love for my family and such a great sense of family values because of my parents. And I talk about that, I think, throughout the book. Um, And then, you know, I go to, to, obviously I went, well, not obviously, but I went to Florida State 
and graduated from Florida State and was there during the Civil Rights Movement. And then went to Memphis and was in Memphis when Martin Luther King was assassinated and watched that city literally flip upside down overnight. Suddenly there were there were racial tensions that there had never existed in Memphis, in the music business especially. Staxel Records just went died the day that Martin Luther King did. So there were you know I've just been it seemed then in the right place. I wouldn't call that the right place, but to be in that city when. It, when that happened, and to be able to tell my story and my involvement with the music community in Memphis, and to have known the inside of how that changed, and then I went to California with uh, Leon Russell.